I'm Marianne Kolbisak McGee, Executive Editor at Information Security Media Group. Today I'm speaking with Congressman Bill Foster, a Democrat representing the 11th Congressional District of Illinois. Representative Foster, for the second time in two years, introduced legislation into the House of Representatives to lift a 20-year ban on the Department of Health and Human Services to fund the development and adoption of a unique national patient identifier. The House recently voted to approve the bipartisan amendment, which was co-sponsored by Representative Mike Kelly, Republican of Pennsylvania. Hi, Congressman Foster. Thanks for joining us. Well, happy to be here. So, for starters, Congressman, the House, as I mentioned, recently passed the Foster-Kelly Amendment as part of the House Fiscal 2021 Appropriations Bill for the Departments of Labor, Health and Human Services, and Education. And as I mentioned, the House last year also voted to support a similar budget amendment that you introduced to lift the HHS ban. But ultimately, the Senate approved a budget bill last year that left in place the ban, citing privacy concerns over the potential national patient ID. So my first question, why is lifting the ban on HHS to fund a possible national unique patient ID such an interest for you? And what is your prediction? Do you think the Senate will also finally move to lift the ban and why? Well, as actually the only PhD scientist in Congress, I have been particularly, I think, offended by the inefficiency of our system. Everyone in this country has had the experience where you go to a new hospital or clinic, you have to fill out piles of forms with information about you know, when you got vaccinated as a child and this sort of stuff, and you know for sure that some other computer system has this somewhere, and it's silly for you to waste everyone's time filling out those forms. But moreover, having a unique patient identifier, it could save lives by reducing medical errors. There are estimates that tens of thousands of Americans lose their lives by preventable medical errors, a significant fraction of which are simply getting the wrong drug to the wrong patient and having a drug interaction, um, or even worse. But the argument has gotten stronger recently because of the opioid epidemic. Everyone is familiar with the idea of uh, doctor shopping for opioids. This is when someone is, begins getting uh, addicted to opioids and then gets prescriptions from multiple doctors. And this is one of the real gateways to opioid addiction. And, of course, had there been a unique patient ID in place for the last 20 years, that would have closed the door to one of the main avenues for opioid addiction. It also will save little lower costs for patients and providers by saving just countless man hours of, of lost time trying to make sure, you know, is this the correct drug going to Bill Foster of Illinois or my son Bill Foster who lives elsewhere in Illinois or the Bill Foster in Indiana. And uh, it actually is going to become even more important when we get around to vaccinating people for COVID-19 or serologic testing, just having a unique identifier uh, for yourself, I think will be, it's an investment that will pay off again and again. As you mentioned, this is actually the second time that this was passed by the House. Last summer, we got a strong bipartisan vote in favor of it, and then a a real groundswell of support. Uh, We got a, a letter signed by, I think, 53 medical societies and providers and uh, an organization called the Patient ID Now Coalition was launched earlier this year. 
the HHS Office of National Coordinator for Health IT, who was sensing that this was something that's likely to finally happen, actually held a working session on this, I think around the beginning of June. And so this year, July 30th, I was very proud that our bipartisan amendment was adopted unanimously by the House. And now we're just counting on the Senate to do the right thing. So, Congressman, do you think that an improved patient ID system might have helped in terms of dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic? If so, how? And what about the surge in use of telehealth? How might a national patient ID help during this surge in use with telehealth? I think it's a direct application to telehealth really will rely on getting a secure digital ID. You know, one of the things that that we're missing in this country, frankly, is the ability of a person in the United States to digitally prove that they are who they say they are. This is something that exists in other countries and is tremendously effective in preventing financial fraud as well as simplifying online medical information transfer. You know, it's obviously important that someone's private medical records remain private. And if you contact a doctor online, the doctor uh, or the provider will need to know with pretty high certainty that you are who you say you are and not some private investigator snooping around or or an ex-spouse or all of the bad things you can imagine happening if records are not kept private. And so that uh, if a convenient means of authenticating yourself online is provided to Americans who wish it, this could be transformative. You know, not only for medical records, but for financial transactions, for dealing with the government. When you have to, you know, for example, during COVID-19, you had to uh, receive funds from the government that obviously required proving who you are so it doesn't get sent to the wrong address. And so there, there's a, a wide range of uses for this. What we're focusing on here is what should be the low-hanging fruit, uh, simply having a unique identifier so that you don't have to figure out if this, you know, which one of the many patients with your name or a similar name you really are. And this unique patient identifier would follow you as you change names uh, during marriage and divorce, or if you simply change your name. This would be uh, something that would follow you for your lifetime. And as long as the, this was something that patients were able to opt into, uh, which I think would be true in most most cases, probably not in the case of opioid prescriptions. Obviously, you can't make it voluntary if you're going to try to prevent doctor shopping when the patients don't want it found out that they have multiple opioid prescriptions. So that you know, with a few exceptions like that, um, this would be voluntary. And I think that the savings over time for medical providers will be immense. And I anticipate that the very significant effort that will be involved in onboarding patients is something that is uh, going to be embraced and I think with the right kind of understandings uh, happily paid for by medical providers at large just because how much it will simplify their lives. So Congressman, when it comes to the unique patient identifier that you would envision, is it a number like a social security number? Is it something more sophisticated that's less prone to abuse? Does it use biometrics? What sorts of technology that might be more secure than, say, a social security number? Well, I think the social security number is pretty much, you know, that cat is out of the bag. You can purchase someone's social security number for something like $1.50 on the dark web. 
and so we should just stop pretending that that's some sort of shared secret. This could be in the form that Zika Manuel enthusiastically describes. I think it is, it's either Taiwan or Singapore where everyone gets a, a patient identifier card uh, with a little chip in it that identifies yourself. So you, you can't pretend you're someone else on there unless you also have the patient ID card. And by presenting that, they immediately pull in all of the electronic health records from all of the systems. Uh, so you give that that card and the permission to pull in your records, and then it's the end of it. You don't have to fill out form after form, and many mistakes are prevented. That's one way to do it. Another way to do it is to tie it to the real ID or similar IDs for undocumented people that are being rolled out you know, all across the country. And these are unique identifiers. The point of the Real ID Act and, and Real ID cards is that people are biometrically deduped. So you can't uh, get a Real ID card in four different states under four different names as one of the routes to getting opioid prescriptions in multiple, from multiple doctors was doing exactly that. And with the real ID card, which uh, people will need to fly on an airplane, it was going to be this October. I think it's now been delayed by a year. But soon enough, people will need this unique identifier in the form of a real ID. That's a very attractive option to tie your unique medical record to. Now, Congressman, you mentioned that this unique patient identifier would be an identifier that would sort of follow with people, you know, if they get married, they change their name or whatever. What do you say to critics who fear that lifting this ban on HHS working on a unique patient identifier will fuel new privacy concerns, including a more big brother government sort of thing that could track people's health and other related activities that maybe individuals wouldn't necessarily want the government to know about? Well, first off, all of these big databases exist, and I think people are becoming more and more aware of it. That's one of the things that's changed in the last 20 years. You know, we know that your credit card companies, uh, all of the credit rating agencies, things like this, and data brokers generally maintain enormous databases on every one of us, whether we like it or not, unless you're living off in the wilderness, off the grid as very few people wish to do these days. And when you, when you propose things like this that have aspects of having a national identification system, you traditionally get opposition from sort of the ACLU on the left and from these sort of Red Dawn people, the survivalist types on the right. And so when Representative Kelly and I proposed our amendment last year, uh, we were pleasantly surprised at the fact that this largely did not happen. I think we got a sort of uh, pro forma a letter of opposition from the ACLU uh, because of all the concerns you mentioned, uh, but there was not a very extensive effort, you know, not a letter writing campaign or anything like this. And uh, Representative Kelly, who's a very, you know, he's a right-wing guy. I think he wouldn't object to my characterizing him that way. He got essentially no complaints uh, from the right wing of his party. And so I think that what's happened is that people really understand these big databases are out there and with a lot of information on us. And what they want is to have the system run efficiently. They want to avoid uh, mistakes being made and time being wasted. And they want to have a strong legal uh, definition of what is okay and what is not on mixing data around. 
uh, because for most people, actually, someone impersonating them online or potentially at a doctor's office is a much more real threat to their privacy than any worries about these big databases. And the way you prevent uh, identity fraud is to have a high-quality digital means of, of proving that you are who you are, potentially linked to the real ID card. So, Congressman, in the Senate, there's also a bipartisan bill, the Patient Matching Improvement Act, which was introduced by Senators Maggie Hassan, a Democrat of New Hampshire, and then Bill Cassidy, a Republican of Louisiana, that proposes to make the U.S. Postal Service's address formatting tool available to hospitals and COVID-19 testing labs to enable more accurate exchange of health information between health IT systems. Are you familiar with the proposal and any thoughts on whether getting the post office involved with patient matching is a good or a bad idea and why? Well, one of the difficulties is that no single system is going to be perfect here. Because if you want to, for example, prevent doctors shopping for opioids, uh, there really is not an alternative than to biometrically dedupe people. And that, that's a tough nut to crack on this thing. You know, if someone has multiple residences in multiple states, it's very potentially under different names, the post office may believe they are separate people. But it's not going, it's not going to prevent doctor shopping for opioids. And in fact, if there are separate electronic health records, then you could easily get in a car accident, go to the emergency room, and they will pull down one of your two sets of electronic health records you have down there, give you a drug, but not being aware that there's actually a dangerous drug interaction that would be visible if you had the complete set of electronic health records. So really, I don't believe there is a substitute for a unique patient identifier for patients who wish to have that. And there will be a number of subtleties in onboarding patients here. You know, for example, when the, what I envisage is that if a patient opts into having a unique patient identifier, that they're then scheduled to sit down with an expert who will go through and attempt to pull in all of the electronic health records that may exist for that patient. And then the patient would say, do you want, whether that is really them or not, and do they want that included in part of their permanent set of of health records? Uh, So there may be things that have happened to them in the past that they want to remain private. And with the exception of things like opioid addiction, um, I think that those are things that they're entitled to choose to remain private and separate from the unique patient identifier. But for the vast majority of treatments, uh, you know, patients just want to have their doctors aware of everything that could complicate and affect the medical treatment they're getting. And finally, Congressman, in terms of privacy legislation involving the healthcare sector or other sectors, are there any pending proposals right now that you're watching or supporting these days that we should be keeping our eyes on and why? Well, I think everyone is impressed with the benefits of telehealth. That the simple thing that we did during the pandemic of letting doctors talk to patients with common tools like FaceTime and and Skype that are available to the majority of people in the United States, that has been a tremendous improvement in the efficiency. But we have to make sure that this doesn't become a backdoor for really sloppy uh, cybersecurity practices. 
and so that we're going to have to have another look at making telehealth private and available easily to the vast majority of Americans. The benefits are absolutely clear. Um, even in normal times, people are often queasy about spending an hour in a doctor's waiting room. And if that can be avoided with an online consultation, you know, the public health in this country will improve. And there will be num a number of proposals. I'm trying to understand where we're, we're going to go when the COVID crisis passes, but we still want to maintain the benefits of, of telehealth. I, I think when we look at issues like telehealth and like electronic payments online, uh, we're going to see that there's a real need in this country for a high-quality means for not only healthcare patients, uh, but people in financial transactions to securely digitally authenticate ourselves. And there are a number of groups that are uh, working on this uh, in order to make our government, our healthcare providers, and our financial providers have a, a unified way to make the online interactions much safer. And a unique patient identifier is a sort of first useful step in that direction. Thank you, Congressman Foster. I've been speaking to Representative Bill Foster. I'm Marianne Kolbesak-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.